I'm a huge nerd. Oh, okay, yeah, me too. I'm like actually beyond a fan. Like I watch the fucking YouTube videos that explain what's going on. Well, you know, I'm theory in, theory videos. Do you know that I'm in a um, Game of Thrones fantasy league? <laughs> yeah, we could have been talking about this all this time. Yeah. Oh well. All right, welcome listeners to the second episode of Know Your Enemy, uh, a podcast about American conservatism and the American right. I'm Matt Sittman, one of the podcast co-hosts, and I'm here with my friend Sam Etherbell. Hi, Matt. <laughs> Hi, Sam. <laughs> and today we're talking about the rhetoric of reaction, perversity, futility, jeopardy. And The Rhetoric of Reaction is a book by Albert O. Hirschman. It was published in 1991. And uh, the idea is that in these early episodes, we might uh, kind of lay out some basic ideas, some theories of conservatism, kind of lay a foundation that later episodes might build on. So we're going to talk about this book today. Yep, I can't wait. Sam, do you have any thoughts on this? (laughs) Um, No, I was just going to let you do the whole podcast. Okay, yeah. Um, I did want to say I did want to say sure I had some we got some feedback about the first episode which is that um, that I <laughs> right that I go. Sam Adler Bell interrupted Matt a lot of times <laughs> and I will say that that is true I did interrupt him a lot but I think that the feedback the criticism itself is anti-Semitic why is that Sam <laughs> <laughs> because my my people are interrupting people and if I was interested in what matt was saying i would interrupt him and if i wasn't interested then i wouldn't interrupt him and all of you who have all of you have accused me of being a person who interrupts um you hate the jewish people so i'm going to keep interrupting him so so the interruptions were a kind of compliment a compliment to you yes i did give you a little bit of a hard time about that yeah when when i listened to the raw cut but yeah, uh, I was just giving you a hard time. I I'm like also to tease Sam. Kidding. <laughs> I'm gonna not interrupt Matt as much in this episode of the podcast. It was fine. It worked. We want to. We want banter. We want back and forth. We want dialogue. Yeah. Uh, for fans of the first episode, uh, this does connect back because the first time I came across this book was in the seminar on American conservatism that I took with Michael Kazin, and it always stuck in my mind as a worthwhile book. As I said, this came out in 1991. So it's a, a book that, even though it goes well beyond its immediate context, that reaches back to Edmund Burke and the very origins of conservatism. It also is a book that clearly was occasioned by the, especially neoconservative assaults on the welfare state in the United States. Right. Um, now, who was Albert Hirschman? I was going to say. Yeah. Hirschman was a basically an economist uh, who, at various times, worked. I think for the for liberal economist, we a, should say. a liberal economist, yeah, um, who had studied kind of economic and political development, especially in Latin America. He fought for the side of the loyalists in the Spanish Civil War as a young man. Uh, ended up in France, kind of during uh, during World War II, and helped evacuate Jews, essentially finding them papers that could get them out. Especially, very, especially Jewish intellectuals. Jewish intellectuals, yeah. I think 
I think he was responsible in part for like people like Hannah Arendt making it to the United States. The book we're talking about today, The Red Arc of Reaction, is not his most famous book. I, if I had to guess what his most famous book is, it's Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, um, which is a study of sort of how people respond when the organizations they're in are how you express displeasure from them. Yeah. And, and instead of exiting, which is one option, kind of walking away from a bad situation, you can uh, stay loyal to it and express your voice. But this book, again, The Rhetoric of Reaction, it came out in 1991. And essentially what it is, is a study of conservative rhetoric. And what he's looking for is patterns in conservative rhetoric that appear again and again over time. And what he does is he identifies three main categories of arguments. Uh, one is, he calls it the perversity thesis. The second is the futility thesis. And the third is the jeopardy thesis. And we're going to talk about all these in turn. And and also, uh, before this episode is over, he also engages in a kind of parallel argument about progressive rhetoric. Right. And how those on the left tend to argue about their ambitions and aims and programs. We mentioned that um, this book came out of uh, a, a kind of, as he put it, uh, an ambitious enterprise launched by the Ford Foundation during the Reagan years to kind of examine what was going on on the right. And um, uh, one of the members of the group in one of their meetings uh, used a lecture by an English sociologist named T.H. Marshall on the development of citizenship mm-hmm. in the West. And, and basically, it proceeded basically in three phases. The first was the development of civil rights. The second was the expansion of political rights, mostly meaning suffrage. And then the third was uh, an expansion into kind of social and economic rights, right. meaning the development of the welfare state. And what Hirschman does is... It's sort of a 17th, 18th, or I'm sorry, 18th, 19th, 20th century story right and and what Hirschman does is he, he thinks the original lecture this is derived from was too it's a too simple of a story meaning rather than viewing progress in the West as being this slowly unfolding continuous story he actually sees that at every turn with every forward thrust every progressive thrust there was a corresponding kind of reactionary thrust and in those moments of contestation he looks for what conservatives were doing, especially what arguments they leveled against uh, these developments. Right. One of the key features of the book is the centrality of the French Revolution to it. Mm-hmm. And it's true that I think you can say that conservatism really begins with the reaction. Modern conservatism, as we understand it today, uh, really begins with the reaction to the French Revolution, and especially Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. And and this is where he derives his sort of three theses from the perversity thesis, the futility thesis, and the jeopardy thesis. Um, now we should talk about those in detail because those are the real meat of the book. Yeah. And and so the first thing he identifies, the first kind of feature of conservative rhetoric, is the perversity thesis, which is to say, what Sam? How would you define that? Oh my God, this is like being put on the spot. I know this is very Socratic. Uh, well, I can I can take this if you want. But well, let me <laughs> let me see if I can do it. We can cut it out if I don't actually have it. Um, the perversity thesis is the idea that you know progressives who try to change a set of social um, facts, social 
uh, structures, um, what happens is that whatever they try to change perversely, the opposite of what they're trying to achieve um, will be the effect. Um, and it, it's, it's linked very deeply to an idea of providence, of like that, 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 that history and, and, um, and, he, and, and human progress proceeds according to divine or otherwise preordained laws. And when people try um, to change the course of history in some exerted uh, way, the effect will be this sort of ironically opposite um, kind of outcome. Right. So when human beings try to change things for the better, not only does it fail, but it actually instantiates the opposite of what they were trying to do. The second thesis, the futility thesis, is just that the intended uh, effects are, they simply don't, they don't work. Um, and this is where what you were saying about sort of iron laws of, of history or economics come into play, meaning that, that the world works in a certain way. And uh, progressive do-gooders, when they try to improve things, they simply fail. And the third is what he calls the Jeopardy thesis, which is that um, whatever the new progressive aim you're looking to achieve is, it imperils past achievements or other deeply cherished goods. Probably the form in which it has taken root the most is a tension between liberty and democracy. Yeah. If, if you let the unruly masses, uh, if you unleash them on a political society, then all the inherited liberties that have accrued over time will be threatened. Right. Um, so that's the kind of thing that he means by the Jeopardy thesis. Change thing. jeopardizes some kind of... Some kind of other essential good, something that we've that we've that we've achieved over time that that is precious, right? So, <clears throat> uh, those are the three theses. Those are the, the basic definitions of them. And what we're going to do is talk about them in a little more detail as we go along. But then, kind of think about how they cash out in contemporary politics. And in fact, that's one of the really remarkable aspects of the book is is to see the consistency with which conservatives have made these same arguments the occasions might be different but the arguments themselves are remarkably similar yeah yeah so uh the perversity thesis the perversity, the perversity thesis. thesis so in the book in the context of the french revolution uh the argument would be that uh this forward thrust for the rights of man to use the, the language of the French mm -hmm. revolutionaries, it actually does not deliver those rights, yeah. but actually further enslaves the populace to a some kind of despotic ruler. Right. And one of the things about that argument is that Burke made them in the 1790s, sort of before, say, the terror right. in the French Revolution. So part of Burke's reputation hinges on the fact that he supposedly foresaw what was going to happen. And right. in fact, that this uh, forward thrust for, for the liberty of human beings actually further enslaved them. Right. And, Committee and, of public safety. Right, <laughs> right, right. And, and then when it applies to the move in the 19th century for greater suffrage, um, the argument is that uh, rather than being a sort of welcome development, that including more people in the political process would be a good thing. It actually would be a terrible disaster. Mm -hmm. And again, kind of lead to the enslavement 
uh, of of human beings. But is it an anti-democratic disaster because it, it produces some kind of tyranny? Right, it produces some kind of tyranny. So in this case, um, he talks about the kind of theories that... <clears throat> um, I mean, there was different ways of arguing against it. But one would be the kind of fear of mass society. Right. That once you let the masses loose, uh, what's going to happen is that their irrationality um, would, would uh, and kind of selfishness and lack of prudence and wisdom would ruin society. Just sort of generally when people make arguments against you know, mass democracy, suffrage, um, you know, the will, the will of the masses. Um, you often hear this idea that, that, you know, the tyranny of the majority, that like at some point, um, that the, the democracy produces some mm -hmm. kind of tyrannical rule at some point. And in yeah. fact, I mean, you know, these, these wouldn't be, people would be traditionally understood to be conservative, though they are, you know, you, you remember after Trump was elected that there was a, a spate of articles written by liberals that said like did we go wrong with democracy it was like mass democracy a bad idea because it produced someone like trump who mm -hmm. could be a tyrant of a sort um who uh, might might spell the end of american democracy right so you think you're displacing uh a king with the ballot box but actually you're just uh setting yourself up with a new a new tyrant right but then um you can kind of see what he's really after, which is the way the perversity thesis is applied to the welfare state, and especially in the United States, which is that um, various programs to help a lot of the poor, to help single mothers, um, so the aid for families with dependent children, for example, is, is right. one of the main examples he, he uses. Uh, not only do they not Free welfare help, reform welfare. AFTC. Right, right. Pre, well, this is in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so it's a an argument that actually when you try to help the poor people with these welfare programs, you actually immiserate them further. You make them uh, sort of, you deepen the extent to which they're mired in poverty. Yeah, you create. dependency. You create dependency, and, right. Yeah. And so you actually, you don't actually improve their lives, you make them worse. You, you, you shackle them to the state in right. a way that, that ultimately makes their lives worse. I mean, it's incredible. Like, it can be just very eye-opening when you, when you have a conceptual term to describe what it is, the, the form of this argument as the perversity thesis. You realize that it's just so fundamental. It's so central. Yeah. Like, as a, as a rhetorical device, what would, what, what would so many of the responses that conservatives have to progressive um, ideas um, be without this rhetorical device. And he mentions in particular Charles Murray's, our friend Charles Murray. Friend of the uh, pod. Friend of the pod, Charles Murray. Let's get him uh, on. His book called Losing Ground. And the title gives it away, right? That actually all these uh, welfare programs, especially those of the, the Great Society, um, actually cause further problems. Um, now, as Sam pointed out, you can hear this echoed in contemporary conservative rhetoric. And I wanted to quote from the book because I think this is a really key point this is something that rereading the book I I mean I was furiously underlining as I as I read it and this is um, well I'll just this is page 19 of the book but he says if you're reading along at home <laughs> right for the, all those of you who have <laughs> as soon as you heard this clicked on to Amazon and ordered this there's book. only like 13 copies of this book available online <laughs> so if you're yeah. one of the 13 listeners who yeah who purchased it 
Um, in the wake of the French Revolution, um, in kind of the decades after, there was a, a Joseph de Maistre, um, who was sort of a thrown and alder reactionary critic of the French Revolution. Um, he especially liked to appeal to divine providence. And, and this is the quote from the book. Man is held up to ridicule by divine providence and by, the, and by those privileged social analysts who have pierced her designs for in setting out to improve the world radically, he goes radically astray. But the key word there is ridicule. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning uh, the do-gooders who try to improve things actually are, um, are sort of ridiculed by, for domestic divine providence, but in, in later centuries, uh, like the, the neo like Charles Murray doesn't say God is laughing at the yeah. architects of the great society. But the point is that there's a naivete right. and almost stupidity to the progressives who want to improve the lot of human beings. And, and there's a way in which um, that deserves ridicule. Right. And, and, and where I'm going with this is that when I was reading the book, I mean, this is what you, this is, I think, a staple of contemporary conservative rhetoric. I think one other thing to say about the perversity thesis is that it rings true, uh, I, or it has a certain common sense appeal. Because as Hirschman points out, it is deeply rooted in both a religious understanding of human beings, as, as the Demestra, uh, quote points out it's God laughs at our designs to improve the lot of men. Uh, but also it's rooted in say Greek mythology, uh, hubris nemesis. Yeah. Uh, so that like, like kind of in the deep architecture of our psyches, there's a sense in which these arguments appeal. Yeah. Part of, part of what is, is unsaid in our conversation so far is that these are very compelling arguments. Mm Mm-hmm. And they work on some kind of fundamental level. Um, they 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 have they relate to sets of um, norms and ideas that are deeply embedded in whatever, mm-hmm. like the history of Western thought, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that they and they and they 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 rely on tropes that yeah. exist yeah. in our ideas of what human nature is. Yeah. And um, you know, there's a reason that conservatives have been deploying these rhetorical strategies um, for hundreds of years. Right. And that gets to the, the point we kind of touched on earlier, which is that conservatives posing as the realistic truth tellers. Um, and in fact, as Hirschman points out in the book, uh, the reactionaries or conservatives who make these arguments, they often pose it as, uh, especially with regard to the perversity thesis, They uh, the form their argument takes is, Gosh, you know, I really agree with your aims. Right. <laughs> um, you're right. It would be wonderful if everyone could have health care. But, yeah. but then the buck comes in and they say, but it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was, I was thinking often as I was reading this that, that a lot of these things, um, we have a term for it now, which is concern troll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is somebody who says, gosh, I totally agree that that would be wonderful, wonderful if we could do that. I totally agree with your goal. It's just Mm -hmm. that, it's just that there's, that your, that your, um, strategy for achieving that goal is, um, going to produce all of these perverse effects. Yeah. Um, or it's futile Mm -hmm. or it will jeopardize some other, um, set of values or goods that we already have. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, um, from the standpoint of reading this book in 2019, 
one of the remarkable things about it is you really see the degree to which conservatives have won the rhetorical war. Mm-hmm. Meaning there are probably, there are lots of Democrats, there are a lot of people on the broad center left who might, in theory, really think it's it would be wonderful if we could give everyone health care. But it yeah. just... It's, 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 it just can't work. Yeah. And, and so one effect of these arguments is to make you think all your dreams are delusional. Mm-hmm. All, all, all the visions you have for a better society are in fact, uh, not just a, a kind of technical problem that would take some figuring out to make work, but that they're, they're actually kind of morally dangerous. And that if you dream too big, if you, if you hope too much, you will you will not just kind of fail, but but actually induce more misery and pain, and I think that's a lesson that's been deeply internalized on by the Democratic Party, especially. Yeah, uh, and and this is where it does go back to the sort of deeply rooted myth. I mean, he doesn't talk about the Tower of Babel in the book, but that's another one, right? Like man builds a tower to the heavens, yeah. trying to reach reach God and, and, and is, it is thwarted and, and, and not just thwarted in the sense of it not working, but that man was, um, kind of cast down and, and spread across the earth, speaking different languages so that any future plans to kind of come together in some way are, are uh, proven to be a, a giant mistake. Right. Part of the strength of these arguments is that they're made from a position of certainty from a from a rhetorical position of of investment in the best possible outcomes for society in general, which is a strategy for obscuring the fact that actually there are political interests at work here, right? There are particular right. outcomes that um, conservatives are trying to um, achieve, right? right? You know, I mean, generally speaking, not changing existing arrangements Right. Hierarchical arrangements. I think it speaks to the almost rhetorical advantage conservatives have, Mm -hmm. which is that, well, deep down, we're all a little conservative. Mm -hmm. I think it's in human nature or it's it's a it's frequently found in human nature to prefer the known to the unknown, Mm. the settled for the unsettled. Uh, the sort of uh, we're familiar with pr- present realities in a way, and so in some ways the burden of proof, or the both the burden of proof and the the rhetorical burden, are on those who want to change it. Yeah. Um, I remember w- one of the great openings to a book is um my my old friend Andrew Sullivan's book, The Conservative Soul. Your old friend Andrew <laughs> Sullivan. He, we've been friends for almost a decade now. He's he's still my friend. But he begins by his with his book, The Conservative Soul, which was written during the height of sort of Bush's second term and and Andrew's dissatisfaction with Bush by saying something like this. We're all a little conservative in that, you know, we feel the pangs of loss when the big tree in our backyard that we grew up in, like, gets cut down, <laughs> right? There's, like, we're all a little averse to change. Um, we almost have to be like memory is constitutive of who we are as human beings. Uh, if we, if memory didn't constitute us, we would be simply skimming along the surface of life, like phenomenon to phenomenon, emotion to emotion, uh, sensory data to sensory data. Right. Right. Like there's, so we're all a little conservative. And I think that speaks to the, in some ways, just again, sort of the positional advantage conservatives have in these arguments because they, they're the ones arguing that 
for the status quo. And that's actually a much more powerful argument than I think we give it credit for. Well, part of what you're saying is that it's always easier to make an argument for maintaining the status quo if you're making making the argument to a political um, constituency that benefits from the status quo, and in the context in the context of incomplete um, enfranchisement, conservatives have the advantage. <laughs> right, right. No, totally. That's correct. Well, maybe the, I, all I'm really saying might be that as I was reading this book, you realize the what a a sort of robust playbook conservatives have to argue against change of any kind. If you're kind of wondering why conservative uh, politics have been ascendant the last 40 years, 50 yeah. years, um, that, that's one reason why. There's a way in which it it works, conservative rhetoric, the way conservatives argue, uh, works with the grain of the universe almost. Hmm. <laughs> Um, I, I don't want that to be the final word. I'm just saying that that well, even as he points to the 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 various both myths, both religious and and ancient, whether it's right. uh, Hubris Nemesis or whether it's kind of God laughing at human folly, uh, it 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 taps into deep deep seated instincts that I think human beings have. Not all human beings, not at all times, right? Uh, but but just that it, it's it it is plain was things that are real about us and I, yeah and, and what i'm saying which is kind of equally um straightforward and um sort of self-evident is that the sorts of people who throughout history who have been less likely to be um entranced by those myths and um compelled by the idea that things as they are are sufficient and so the danger of compromising it potentially jeopardizing it or perversely undermining it um are those who are not feeling that right. the way things are mm -hmm. right now is sufficient yeah. right like yeah. and but of course i mean that isn't to say that like as we know that people who are under the boot are not also um uh, often and potentially compelled by the argument, well, it's bad now, but mm -hmm. it could be worse. And yeah. um, and do you really trust these naive utopians to achieve the end um, that they mm -hmm. claim um, will be the result of embracing this yeah. particular policy? Yeah. Well, this might be a good uh, opportunity to move on to the futility thesis. Yeah. Uh, which is to say the thesis that efforts to improve human society simply don't work. They're futile. And, and I totally agree. I was going to say <laughs> that it, with all these other ones I wasn't sure about, but this one, I do think nothing will ever get better, ever. Yeah. But it's, I, I wanted to mention it on the heels of your last comments because one of the striking features of the futility thesis is the way its purveyors invoke so-called natural laws right, or economic laws. That, that the world simply works a certain way and to try to upend that is an exercise in futility. Yeah. And I think that the way society is arranged, we like to give it the cover of natural laws. Right. The move to make rhetorically is to say like, listen, I didn't decide this. It's just the way it is. Yeah. He talks about this particularly with a number of Italian thinkers, including especially a guy, a gentleman named Gitano Mosca and, and Vilfredo Pareto. 
and students of econ- economics will especially recognize Pareto's name. Mm-hmm. They especially argued against, uh, well, they argued for the futility of any move toward true political citizenship via the franchise. So these arguments were kind of late 19th, early 20th century arguments against uh, expanding the franchise to essentially include all people. Right. Um, and their argument was that society is always, uh, I'm conflating them a bit here, yeah. but uh, that society is always organized between sort of a set of elites and a set of non-elites. Yeah. And, and that our kind of arguments about like going, reaching back to classical political thought like Aristotle, uh, you can have a monarchy or an aristocracy or a democracy, right? You can, you can be ruled by the one, the fewer, the many. Uh, the point of this kind of argument is to say that, well, that abs- all these arguments about different kinds of political regimes obscure the fact that there's always a kind of set of elites and a set of non-elites and that no matter how you arrange things, uh, that's going to be the case. And that's an argument for futility. Right. And in in the sense that, uh, sure, give people the franchise, but it's not going to upend that fundamental reality. Right. It it might change the way it appears in history, but it's not going to actually change the underlying reality. This is the argument that's made against socialism a state socialism of some sort and and was the argument that was that was made against you know the the states that comprise the USSR and that are still made against you know Venezuela and Cuba and again like acknowledging that empirically there are different ways in which this is true or not true in different particular circumstances but the argument is always that ultimately what happens is there's a new elite which is the party you don't fundamentally change um the fact that there are people who win and do not win out in society, mm-hmm. you just change who those people are um, and how they get to that position. You know, you just, mm-hmm. the party elite in this country is the one who gets the nice cars and who gets the cushy jobs and and gets the, and is successful. And then there's a bunch of people who are fucked over. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like the, 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 the old Soviet joke um, which he includes in the book, which is in the book, which is that under capitalism, man exploits man and under socialism, it's the other way around. And that's, and that's sort of a th- argument for fut- of futility, right? That, right. That you try to change society, you try to upend it in this fundamental way. Even the most way. radical transformation doesn't actually change it. Doesn't actually change it. Right. Yeah. Um, another profoundly effective political rhetorical strategy. Right. And, and in the book, one of the interesting Hirschman, one of the interesting things Hirschman points out is that, um, well, notice that these are Italian thinkers he's talking about. Yeah. And he thinks that kind of denigration of democracy was directly connected to the rise of fascism. Right. In, in Italy. His brother-in-law was an Italian uh, philosopher or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, it's kind of saying that, well, if it's futile to further democratize in order to achieve the end you want, maybe the best you can hope for is a kind of strong man to achieve what you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a way of denigrating democratic forms. Uh, and, and as, again, as Hirschman points out that he thinks that's connected to the rise of a strong man like Mussolini. Right. But also he views the futility thesis as being very prominent on the left. Marxist too. left, especially. Right. Which is to say that, it's a way of denigrating any kind of incrementalist reform. Right. Uh, because what you're, the, the argument is that, well, you might think you're improving things, but really you're not. And the same people who benefit are going to keep benefiting. And maybe you can buy off the non-elites a little bit, or maybe you can kind of 
do some things that uh, make people think that things are getting a little better. Right. But but what's really needed is radical structural transformation. It's true that I mean there is a there is there is a rhetorical consonance between the arguments of conservatives in this way and sort of radical um, left radical Marxists who would say that reforms ultimately always forestall um, and revolution revolution and, and necessarily um, sort of they serve to authorize and justify the continued existence of of some kind of bourgeois elite mm-hmm. um, that you know yeah we could do Medicare for all but ultimately that won't be sufficient and most people who are already suffering will keep suffering and um, people who are fine will keep being fine. People yeah. who are in power will keep being in power. And so there's a, there's a, it's a futility yeah. thesis. Yeah. It's sort of a way of shitting on any kind of intermediate improvement. Yeah. Like if you can't get it all, <laughs> it's yeah. not worth doing anything at all. Yeah. I honestly don't really know where I stand on this. There's like a new, there's like, you know, the whole like revolutionary reform argument that's taking mm-hmm. place amongst like DSA people right now. And I don't know if you saw this, uh, this piece in, in commune magazine about, um, I haven't, about, <laughs> not, not reading commune. Uh, no, but, I'm, I'm not against it. I'm just saying I, in this particular case, I haven't. So there's it. a, there's a, there's a really, I think very excellent piece in uh, commune magazine by Jasper Burns about, about the green new deal and about how, the Green New Deal is, for one thing, impossible in the context of capitalism, mm-hmm. and that any version of it that could be possible in the context of capitalism um, will have a lot of perverse affect, effects, actually, hmm. um, b- that will be both futile and perverse. Hmm. Um, because, for example, that like, in order to mine enough minerals that need that will be needed to like build enough um, solar panels <laughs> in order to fund yeah. a growth-based capitalist economy in the United States mm-hmm. um, that, is, that, is, that is carbon neutral, you will create havoc in third world countries where these mines for these minerals exist. Right. The way he lays it out is very compelling. There's good arguments. Uh, there, there have been some compelling arguments. Um, Comrade, comradely arguments <laughs> against um, yeah. what he says, and and ultimately what he's trying to argue for is the necessity of global revolution, and in particular the instantiation of some kind of degrowth communism. Right, right, right. yeah. That's that's where my mind was going. That this was argue, ultimately an argument for degrowth, de- degrowth strategy. Yeah, yeah. But it is interesting, just in our in the context of our discussion about rhetoric, the fact that. Um, yeah, for sure. He's 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 deploying the, he, this radical communist, mm-hmm. very brilliant writer in my opinion, um, is y- using the arguments from perversity and from futility um, to make this argument against this big liberal reform, which is what the Green New Deal is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one thing, uh, and Hirschman, I mean, we should say he's a liberal. Yeah, died in the wall. Yeah, uh, I forget exactly when he died. He lived quite long so it was it was only in the last so many years that he he died yeah um but he was uh, i mean it's telling that this book came out in 1991 um and and you kind of you can kind of sense that right because he's he sort of imagines that a kind of experimental 
approach to politics where, well, really what you want to do is uh, you'll try something and part of it will be successful and part of it won't be. And the conservatives will seize on the parts of it that aren't successful. But that yeah. really shouldn't that really shouldn't color your entire view of, of what happened. And that you'll learn from the things that worked and you'll learn from the things that didn't work. And then the next step in the process will be something you undertake with that kind of wisdom gleaned from, from yeah. the failures and successes of what you did previously. I mean, one of the interesting things he, he argues explicitly is that the idea of unintended consequences... Uh, originally, like in when it's found in some of the figures of the Scottish Enlightenment, like Adam Smith, really is an argument uh, for kind of human freedom, and and that the world is not totally immune to purpose of human action. Yeah, uh, and that even if something, to go back to the perversity thesis, even if something uh, happens that isn't what you intended, it at least proves that you <laughs> that human action has some consequences in right. terms of reality right uh whereas the futility thesis is no like you're you're in a closed system that is impervious to any human efforts to change and it's not and and but at least if you're admitting that unintended things unintended unintended consequences can happen that's in a way good because you can learn from them yeah human agency is real uh whereas for the futility thesis it it it's not the lonesome friends of science say the world will end most any day Well, if it does, then that's okay Cause I don't live here anyway I lived down deep inside my head Where long ago I made my bed I get my mail in Tennessee My wife, my dog, and my family uh-huh. So the thing that I was that just kept coming to mind when I was reading about reading Hirschman's account of the futility thesis is um, is evolutionary um, psychology which is so popular on the right now right especially sort of like the the sort of like eugenics friendly intellectual right kind of thing which is just very deeply and and Jordan Peterson like deeply Mm -hmm. about this sort of evolutionary psychology idea that like there are there are ways in which humans are hardwired to interact with each other, mm-hmm. women yeah. and men, genders, um, and that and that stuff's always been there percolating, uh-huh. but it's so prevalent now, and yeah. it's pure futility thesis. Mm-hmm. The idea that you try to change these things, it won't work. Sometimes yeah. there's a perversity thesis part of it too, right? Or yeah. it's sometimes a bit of perversity and jeopardy, mm-hmm. right? You know, you try to. Um, change gender right right you try to introduce these like new ideas of of what constitutes uh masculinity and femininity or gender performance Mm -hmm. um and you undermine whatever like freedom of speech or you or you like create this like stalinist um system where you're you have to say certain things you know jordan peterson like just honing in on the idea that he's supposed to refer to people with particular pronouns right. it undermines his yeah. liberty right so it's a, that's a sort of yeah. jeopardy thesis kind of thing but basically i just think like the idea that like human beings are hardwired to to interact with each other in particular ways and that can't be changed is a such such a 
such a ubiquitous conservative argument right now, especially totally. among, and that that it's particularly compelling. It seems like to this kind of young, self-understood, empiricist conservative type yeah. well, man, we, man. Yeah. Well, th- that's a really interesting point, Sam, because I think in some ways, um, as Hirschman points out, the futility thesis it, it was often connected to brute economic laws. Yeah. Right. That the world of economics worked a certain way. What you might say is that p- the the genius of Jordan Peterson yeah. is to extend that into the cultural realm. And this is where it matters that he's a Jungian psychologist, oh, right? Yeah. So that as I mean, we were talking about this a little earlier, which is that it's uh, not just genetics. That, that, it's that, also that, that tropes. some of these well, some of these instincts we have are deeply rooted in human mythology. And and this is what as a Jungian kind of analyst, so to speak, he is pointing towards. And this is why, like uh, a few weeks ago, I read that Rod Dreher, who's a fan of Jordan Peterson's, was listening to his lectures on the book of Genesis. So all these kind of ancient texts, whether it's the book of Genesis, whether it's Greek mythology, um, these myths are not just myths, but essentially storybook versions of fundamental realities that structure our minds and human society, right? right? And, and, and so in a way, I think part of what makes Peter Peterson interesting is that the kind, of, the kind of futility that conservatives argued for when it came to economic programs and, and that were supposedly refuted by appealing to brute economic laws are now being extended into the cultural realm and saying, you can't do this precisely because there's this brute reality that will not let you do this. And that it's insane to uh, demand that certain pronouns be used because it's running up against these fundamental realities, these kind of laws of human nature that are, for Peterson, expressed in the various... Uh, various biblical stories, Greek mythology, but also things like fairy tales. That's one of the more deranged, like Jordan Peterson uh, YouTube videos, right? It's like him talking about Disney movies and, and and what that reveals about like the fundamental structure of our minds, right? Right. Well, that's, that's that, you, you're totally right. And I hadn't actually thought about it this way before, but it's, it, the he, he's, he's doing both. He's doing both a, a cultural determinism and a genetic determinism at the same time, and that our efforts to, and that probably he would say that the cultural tropes are born of um, genetic, genetic to deep, deep human drives, right? Which is why the sort of effort of progressives or radicals to change culture, right? Which is the is the is the um, the sort of site of oppression for a lot of like anti-cultural Marxist um, conservatives now, um, why, why that effort is so uh, obscene and, and wrong, because it's both against our deepest human drives and it's against the, the lessons and tropes mm-hmm. and myths that we have learned about what it means to be a man or a woman um, that we've learned from that have, that have been inherited and passed down yeah. through myth, mm-hmm. um, through, through Jungian unconscious, <laughs> collective unconscious. <laughs> yeah. But th- well, this is too why, uh, the analysis of power becomes so important for conservatives because in a way what they're saying is these, these developments in the realm of culture, 
say when it comes to gender, when it comes to pronouns. Yeah. Uh, the only way they can continue on is if power is on their side. Like these things are so unnatural and so irrational. I mean, the thing is, like when you read, say, Rod Dreher's blog, he doesn't which just... Which you should. Which, which you should. I mean, I am, I'm almost ashamed of what a devotee of Rod's <laughs> blog I he's am. He's incredible. And I mean, he's, he's, just, he's just wearing his anxieties and fears on yeah. his sleeves there, in such an... There's abs- which is kind of admirable. Yeah. In, in that it's honest and straightforward. But, but the, the tone you get when you read about some of these developments, again, especially about, say, trans issues, yeah. is not that it's wrong but that it's madness. Yeah. That it's, it's, it's really a kind of just direct, like a, like a, a mass psychosis has taken hold or this kind of derangement has suddenly afflicted us. And, and that the only way, and because it's against nature, so to speak, against some kind of fundamental laws about who we are, um, the only way it can continue to subsist is if the coercive power of the state is allied with it. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. That's and, in, smart. and and in some ways this is like the the fourth movement that Hirsch, Hirschman doesn't talk about, which is you can say that like uh was Hirschman does that there was uh, the initial impulse among progressives uh was applied in the realm of like civil rights. Yeah. And then it applied to Civil rights just meaning there's no longer a monarch. Well, it, it meant that even if there is a monarch, you have there's a, a sort of realm of privacy in which yeah. you can practice the religion you want and you can kind of think the thoughts you want. Right. And so those kind of civil liberties. And then it was applied. The second phase is political rights, meaning actual, basically the right to vote, uh, suffrage. And then it gets applied in the economic in kind of social realm, which is the welfare state. And you might say, like, if you were to update Hirschman's book, we're now in the fourth realm, which is the realm of culture, which uh, using that term's word somewhat expansively to mean things pertain to gender and sexuality, especially women's women's rights. I mean, we call it the cultural turn, right? I I mean, at least on the left, you can read Richard Rorty on the cultural turn uh, on the left, and it it means things that pertain to who you can love, your own expressions of gender and sexuality, et cetera. And so if you were to, um, again, update Hirschman, that would be the fourth phase that he doesn't talk about. And it's interesting that, once again, these rhetorical tropes are brought to bear on them. And and I think Peterson, if you were to explain Jordan Peterson's... um, popularity there's a lot you could say i'm not an expert on peterson but you you might say something like once again he's appealing as the futility thesis would predict to universal human laws the fight against which is well futile yeah yeah and it as it should be acknowledged each of these phases of development are not really discreet for one thing because because we haven't achieved universal suffrage (laughs) Right, like, effectively, no. Yeah. You know, and we haven't, um, you know, mm-hmm. achieved, you know, sort of the private ability to engage in one's life for in, you know, this. each of these phases is sort of incomplete. It's a schema, and like all schemas, it simplifies. Yeah, but and that's fine. As, and as, like, kind of materialists of some sort, um, well, I should speak for myself as a materialist of some sort. Uh, I would say that, like, the the clean distinction between cultural and social is not something I believe in, right? You know, like the... Right, right, of course. Yeah, yeah. so, like, 
yeah, but uh, but it, but it is interesting if we f- if we were to follow his schema. I think you're right. I think that like, and there's a kind of mainstream idea of the progress of um, you know Amer- American social, cultural, and economic progress, which would suggest that we are now at the phase of like addressing these wrongs that operate at the level of culture um and that and that conservatism is responding with its usual arsenal of rhetorical strategies well maybe that's a good transition to the jeopardy thesis yeah let's talk about it yeah uh so the jeopardy thesis is haven't we talked about it uh, only to the extent to which we introduced briefly introduced all the theses okay so the jeopardy thesis to remind our long-suffering listeners is the idea that um, the, the current change you're proposing imperils or puts in jeopardy uh, previous achievements. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of classic version of this is that increasing the amount of democracy in a society by, by uh, expanding the suffrage will imperil the civil rights, the liberties achieved in past right. uh, generations. So it's a, it's a tension between democracy and liberty, so to speak. To bring it a little more up to date, um, he thinks this is also was a kind of classic conservative argument against the welfare state. In particular, he talks about uh, Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. Right. Um, which, again, it kind of... All roads lead to the road to serfdom. <laughs> right. In this podcast. <laughs> right, right. And the, and the argument that Hayek put forward was something like, in a democratic society, legitimacy is based on consensus. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to really get a consensus on how to move forward when it comes to, really, once you move past these basic rights and liberties to something more constructive and ambitious, like a like a, a f- sort of full blown welfare state. Yeah, um, you're never really going to su- achieve a, a social consensus, and so the only way to make it happen is to use the coercive power of the state right. to enact these these reforms and changes. Basically, well, you can fill in the blanks from there, which is to say that the state has to become nearly tyrannical to achieve the ends put forward by progressives. Yeah. And we are so intimately familiar with this argument on the right. I mean, like, basically, this is why every death time you... Death panels. Get, yeah, death panels. It's every, every time you get into an argument where you're making an argument as a leftist or a liberal for some kind of redistribution, um, it, is, it is just, it's right on the tip of the tongue of every conservative that um, what you're, what necessarily, this is a slippery slope, the, what the thin edge of the wedge toward tyranny death panels yeah stalinism Uh uh-huh and it takes it it also there are a few wrinkles in the jeopardy thesis like it's not always that some of these progressive reforms would obliterate civil liberties It, it sometimes took the form of saying that like listen the democratic masses are unruly and irrational and we should thank god that there was a, a, a an intellectual and political elite who did things again. This is especially in the nineteenth century. Yeah, uh, the argument took the form of something like, um, if we had had mass democracy at the beginning of the industrial revolution, 
we would not have ever done any of this because the masses would have mucked it up. They would have kind of cut down. Meaning the, we wouldn't have ever developed the, the technologies necessary right. to instantiate the industrial right, revolution. Right, right. because uh, it, it sort of took the efforts of a few, of a handful of elite, far-sighted geniuses yeah. <laughs> to, who developed the technology necessary to uh, uh, achieve the kinds of things we all take for granted now, like railroads and cotton gins and whatever it might be. Uh, and, and so really, the Jeopardy thesis in that form, the argument becomes something like, see, what you're imperiling is future advancements by, by, by future geniuses, by the small creative elite who actually are responsible for everything good that happens in society. So there, I have a, the, a quote from uh, LeBon, who we were talking about earlier, that I... that I, I mean, talk about a fascinating character in this book. Deeply, yes. Okay, so he says, if democracies had possessed the power they have today, and he's writing this when? This would be... Late 19th century. Yeah. Um, Early 20th. At the if democracies had possessed the power they have today at the time when the mechanical loom, the steam engine, and the railroads were invented, <laughs> the making of these inventions inventions would have been impossible or could have taken place only at the price of repeated revolutions and massacres. It is fortunate for the progress of civilization that the power of the masses began to expand only when the great discoveries of science and industry had already been accomplished. And so, and I, I think it's, I think what you're saying is right, that partially that's about the idea of a necessity of an elite who has access to resources and the time to, to do their genius work, to come up with these ideas. The other thing that it just reminded me of so much is the arguments that are made about uh, Silicon Valley and that are made about disruption. Yeah, say more, say more. It reminded me of Silicon Valley because, I mean, for one thing, like we live in this era where we venerate these uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs right. as these, you know, giants. Secu secular gods. Secular gods, giants of men who um, are inaugurating this new... Uh, moment in history and technological history um, and what's interesting about it is that there is this fear amongst um, people who believe in the idea of creative disruption that the masses are in some ways like a potential obstacle to achieving this mm -hmm. new technological um, world that we might mm -hmm. live in this this libertarian techno utopia and some in some people's vision um because the masses are attached to their jobs and right. to the resources that accrue to them as a result of their jobs and that in this in this change over to um you know automation and the elimination of whatever whatever it is it's like cab drivers um right. instead uber, of uber yeah. um hotel or you know uh, airbnb instead of hotels um that 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 sort of the the ability of the masses to influence um political and technological developments is an obstacle um to achieving technological progress progress yeah i mean and at one level this is a kind of sturdy standard conservative trope in that they've always valorized the at least in the modern American context, they've always valorized the entrepreneur, the genius, the great man of history. Yeah. And and I believe, you know, this is where the libertarian note in conservatism comes to the fore, which is to say um, the again the, to combine some of what we've talked about, the 
some of the rhetoric we see when it comes to, say, the perversity thesis, right? The kind of looking down your nose at at at, at goody two shoes progressives. Um, that kind of disdain comes to the fore when you consider the the phrase going galt. Yeah. Right. Like, like the conservative move is to say, well, yeah, you, you goody two shoe progressives, what would happen if actually all the geniuses in society just just said, fuck it. And, and said, you know what? I'm not being remunerated enough anymore. So I'm going to just say, it's not worth it for me to lavish on society, my genius inventions anymore. Yeah. Or, or my brilliant entrepreneurial schemes that would improve the lives of so many. What would happen if these people just stepped back and said, it's not worth it anymore. I guess one thing that this does bring to mind for me is that like, as we often acknowledge when we have conversations off the podcast about conservatism is that it is not one thing. It is a bunch of different things with, with competing sort of ideas and tendencies and that like the, conservatism of Rod Dreher who imagines um, you know small self-sufficient like Catholic communities um, uh, religious communities villages uh, is very different from the conservatism of a libertarian a utopian libertarian in Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley who imagines some you know Randian paradise in the future but the the, but the rhetoric the rhetorical weapons that they deploy in service of their arguments have some they rhyme so hirschman uh though the bulk of the book is dedicated to discussing reactionary rhetoric conservative rhetoric he closes by talking about various rhetorical tropes that exist on the left on the progressive side of the ledger Mm -hmm. and i would say among those that he identifies that the two most prominent are uh, one, the idea that all good things go together, that there's essentially no trade-offs or costs to various reforms. And the second is that, well, just as we discussed uh, during our commentary on the futility thesis, just as there are kind of iron laws that the right appeals to, mostly economic laws that can't be tampered with if you want to achieve progressive ends, uh, the left thinks that there's a kind of right side of history that uh, also is the outworking of inexorable laws akin to the laws of physics. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess, you know, since I'm a convert to the left <laughs> yeah, and therefore not a, a kind of quasi red diaper baby like you, I wondered what you made of that analysis of Hirschman's. Because I think at one level it is a useful cautionary tale to people on the left um, in the sense that th- there are often costs to reforms. Uh, those costs, I think the left deems worth it. Yeah. Um, but I, I, w- I especially want to just register my dissent from the right side of history rhetoric. Yeah. Um, in part because I just don't, it's interesting. I would not call myself a progressive. I mean, like, there's a certain colloquial sense in which I... No, it's done. It, it, Progressive is done. Yeah, like, no, but I mean, like, there's a certain colloquial sense in which I would be happy to, if forced to adopt that label, I would, if it identified me a certain way on the contemporary American political landscape. But overall, I don't really believe in progress. I think, obviously, that, that we can, through hard work and effort, improve a lot of, of our fellow human beings. 
but I don't believe in, I, I, I do think maybe this is some lingering conservative element of my thought that, uh, well, to borrow, to borrow the phrase from the late Peter Lawler, who was one of my sort of mentors when I was a young conservative, things get better and worse at the same time all the time. Meaning uh, you can make things better, but there's often a cost to it. And there might be some kind of unintended consequence to it. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't do the thing that betters human society, just that it's not cost-free and that, and that there's a certain kind of soft-brained <laughs> progressivism that I personally don't identify with. And I think the, the kind of, maybe the best instantiation of this was Obama always talking about the right side of history or that the, the, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Yeah. It's like, it, it, to me, um, our future is determined by what we do uh, and the efforts we make and not by inexorable laws working themselves out. Like to me, the future could just be as much dystopian as anything. And it depends on what we do here and now, the arguments we make, the organizing we do, the, uh, the people we back, the politicians we back, uh, like, like the future is not settled. It's indeterminate. And, and we actually have agency as human beings to fight for the future we want and we might win and we might, might lose, but it's not determined by some, it, you know, bullshit side of history rhetoric. There's a lot in that that I agree with and there's, and it, it inspires a lot of different thoughts. I mean, for one thing, I think that like the moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice is a rhetorical strategy of a kind of, um, you know, that's something that MLK said yeah. that like that has that, that that might that in a particular in particular moments is a powerful right argument well, right I, and you're yeah. a more and you're a religious leftist right I mean, you don't, right. Well, you, you, you're complicatedly about that exact term religious left right we can talk about that in some episode but yeah. like but like like moral claims or an important part of yeah. of sort of a yeah. leftist. Well, this is something that Hirschman points out. Just to yeah, yeah, I am cutting you off, but uh, Hirschman says, like, in one sense, thinking that the universe is inexorably moving in a certain direction, uh, at one level, you might think it dampens urgency, but in practice, it seems to buck people up. Meaning, meaning, people who are struggling for justice. If you actually think that's the direction the universe is moving, it has a ennobling effect or a, a, an energizing effect in the sense that you you're kind of assured that your efforts are not going to be in vain. Or just because, yeah, I mean, because often if we're if we're making if we're if we're struggling on the left for goals that are so far off, and in so many moments those goals are so far off, the 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 sort of the pick me up that we can get from the nut, from the idea that there is mm -hmm. that there is a some kind of divine preordained um or in a moral or in a more imminent sense just in a kind of marxist laws of economics yeah. and history like of course right i mean there's always there's always going to be a conflict between the idea that there's some kind of inevitable course of historical events and the idea that we have to intervene in those events in order to achieve the end that we want to achieve. But fundamentally, I agree with you, I'm not a teleological leftist, right? Like, right. I don't think that there is a, a course mm -hmm. to history. And I think that for me, in terms of what motivates me, it, it, it doesn't 
it, I'm not motivated. It doesn't help me to imagine that there is a, a, a natural and moral course of events in which I am playing a part that will ultimately always and necessarily result um, in the outcome that I want. That there, that yeah. there is a. I don't believe there's a right side of history, <laughs> right, and uh, right. my study of history teaches me that that's the case. And it, it, it there, right, and it's important that we distinguish yeah. between moments in which a rhetorical strategy is deployed in order to lift people up and to encourage them, um, yeah. and and whether or not that's a theory of mm-hmm. political change. And I do think that leftists can have a tendency to conceive of what it means to be of the left. Mm-hmm. Is that it means to be good and on the side of right? Uh, yeah. Oh, I, just to interject, I think I do think it's notable that it was Obama who invoked the right side of history and the moral arc of the universe, and not to take a random example, Bernard Sanders, <laughs> right? Like there, like I think one appeal to me of the left is meaning the actual left and not like yeah. center left. Yeah. Uh, uh, whatever that might mean, uh, is that it, it acknowledges that politics is struggle and not a yeah. civics lesson. Right. That, that you have to fight for what you want to achieve and not simply kind of just keep going with the way things are going and, and kind of trust that there's a, a sort of benevolent destination that we're all traveling to. Right. Uh, part of the way that that pl- played out with Obama is his his idea of an ever perfecting union, right? The ever that that he had a sort of a creedal idea of American history is that we had a set of ideas that were set out in the in our founding documents that we've mm-hmm. always been striving to achieve, that we've always right. been striving to instantiate in more fundamental and complete, mm-hmm. coherent ways, and. Um, I think that might be something that we could talk about in a future episode in more detail. <laughs> the sort of the, the American creed as, yeah. a, as, as a motivational kind of and rhetorical tool yeah. of the left and the right. Yeah. But um, uh, listeners, but. don't worry. I, I have planned an episode on the Declaration of Independence. Really? I didn't Both, know that. Yeah, uh, because it's a huge issue on the right, how you understand the Declaration. And of course, right, the versus the Constitution. Yeah. Anyways, keep going. Well, so yes. And so... I, I, I um I understand and, and sort of sympathize with what sort of with Obama's I understand how that fits into his idea of the moral and political universe and it and it and it, it's coherent in his vision which I think was deeply flawed um and and inadequate to the to the enemy in some ways right, right? I mean he believed uh in the betters of yeah. of people who didn't who wanted him to... As, as Lincoln might say, the better angels of our natures. He believed in the yeah. better angels. And, and you know what Mitch McConnell said to that? I mean, to hell with angels. To hell with angels. He's going to say, you know? to hell with angels, and he's yeah. going to be a one-term president. Yeah. Um, I think that's exactly right. And the, and the ever-perfecting union, the more perfect union is Lincoln, right? So that makes sense. But I think the other thing about... The, the other thing about the leftist reliance on its own moral goodness as a first principle big problem <laughs> is that it sort of imagines that everyone that it'll be self-evident to everyone that like of course we're right and we're on the side of right how could you not see that mm-hmm. um, and I think that's also a thing that undermines our ability to be sufficiently self-critical to be sufficiently thoughtful about whether our st- strategy is working rhetorical strategies political strategies organizing strategies Mm-hmm. Um, I also think 
um, and this is one of my like hobby horses, is that goodness in the imagination of the left is is associated with weakness. Hmm. And, it, and it's, a, and it, uh, sorry to say this, Matt, <laughs> but it's associated, it's a Christian idea. Mm-hmm. Goodness is associated with weakness. And I think that the left sometimes is under the impression that if they're doing good, then they're necessarily going to be marginalized, that they're necessarily mm-hmm. going to be losing, mm-hmm. that goodness is necessarily weak, yeah. right? And that, that, if yeah. you're, that, if, that if society is wrong and you're right, uh, then you are going to be marginalized in society. And so there's no point in contesting for power in society yeah. because society is always going to be trying to marginalize what is right if society yeah, is wrong. Yeah. And there's a there's an absolutely incredible um, uh, uh, Brecht quote about this, which I'm going to read in its entirety right now, um, which is, it takes courage to tell the truth about oneself and about one's own defeat. Actually, I want to say that I, that I read this quote like over and over and over again after the 2016 election, mm-hmm. after um, Hillary Clinton's defeat. Okay. It takes courage to tell the truth about oneself, about what's about one's own defeat. Many of the persecuted lose their capacity for seeing for seeing their own mistakes. It seems to them that the persecution itself is the greatest injustice. The persecutors are wicked simply because they persecute. The persecuted suffer because of their goodness. But this goodness has been beaten, defeated, suppressed. It was therefore a weak goodness, a bad, indefensible, unreliable goodness. For it will not do to grant that goodness must be weak as rain must be wet. It takes courage to say that the good were defeated, not because they were good, but because they were weak. Hmm. And I think about this all the time, and I think this is one of the great delusions of the left, is imagining, first of all, that if you're good, you're going to lose, and that the reason that we lose is because we're good. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think and that, the goodness is enough and the goodness is enough. That's ex- that's also the implication. which I think which I think is a perennial temptation of not just the left, but the kind of the broad left of center universe in the United States. Right. And my friend, my they f- couldn't believe that a idiotic troglodytic hick Texan like George W. Bush. Yeah. Won twice in a row or or that a, a, a Cheeto monster with a bad tan and terrible hair like right uh, Donald Trump defeated Hillary yes. Clinton. He's certainly not good and right. he won. Right. And yeah. the thing and the thing yeah yeah okay so I think that's right. Yeah and my friend Jonathan Matthew Smucker who's is a very compelling uh political theorist and organizer he says that it, it gives me no solace to be among the um righteous few who stormed the bridge of a sh- of a sinking ship <laughs> yeah right the beautiful losers <laughs> the beautiful losers the left's sort of self-understanding as the the beautiful losers the, the anointed the, the anointed the true few who see the the wrong in the world and do everything in their power to prevent it but if they don't prevent it then well too bad but at least we tried you mm-hmm. know the, you know, you know. In, in fact, the fact that we failed is, in some way, indication of just how right and how good we were. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. That's and a really good point. Yeah. This is so. It's so prevalent on the left. I mean, it's why you can have people who are like still attached to some kind of like sectarian, like tiny offshoot of of offshoot of an offshoot offshoot <laughs> of an offshoot who think. 
Well, I mean, it's, at some point, the masses are going to come around to seeing mm-hmm. that we're right. And, 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 and the fact that we're right is, in some, is so important. <laughs> the, the, but the truth is, it doesn't fucking matter that you're right. It doesn't yeah. matter at all, unless mm-hmm. you have a plan um, for instantiating your view of what, how the world ought to be and how yeah. the country ought to be or how your city ought to be or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> that's a, well, slightly less than encouraging note, but one that I agree I think, with. I think I sh- we should say, too, that I think that many, more and more people on the political left agree with what we're saying right now. Well, there's it, a, I, I, yeah, I think that's correct in the sense that uh, in an odd way, um, not to reference Bernie again, but I do think the ascendancy of someone like Bernie Sanders has meant that people on the left now that there's at least a sense that there are certain possibilities within reach, yeah, it has meant that these questions, somewhat that you're raising, are have come to the fore, like like very practical questions are are, are kind of, it, we're no longer just debating these things theoretically, yeah, but but actual questions of like we're not cosplaying as uh you know Lenin and Kotsky, <laughs> right? Like like no actual questions about strategy and tactics. And whether to endorse a, a kind of an actual politician who may possibly win a democratic primary, like those kinds of things are, um, yeah, live questions. And it's and it's had the salutary effect, I think, of bringing things that were previously theoretical into the realm that at least, if if not of practice itself, it's at least making contact proximate to practice yeah proximate to practice yeah Yeah. i mean if we ever do an episode as we did with the first episode i knew about my kind of history of the left on the left and Uh like you know going to dsa conventions in like 2009 (laughs) like you like the difference between the way that the the american left conceives of itself and its relevance and what Mm -hmm. it potentially could accomplish in the world and um, is is striking. I mean, the it can go too far to the other side of people becoming so infatuated with the idea of achieving political power, whether that's in the form of a Bernie presidency, where they where they start punching left. I mean, yeah. within DSA, this is a big problem. Where, where Bernie becoming president is the best of all possible <laughs> yeah. worlds. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like the Jacobin <laughs> cover of <laughs> I President Bernie <laughs> Sanders. I mean, was a little bit. I think in that vein, <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'm just saying, yeah, yeah. like, um, that, that, that there's, uh, there's always the possibility that we can get ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then the people who are, who are ahead of themselves then start to punch left at the people who are still like, it's not good enough. It's not yeah. good enough. But the power of the voices on the left, on the true fundamental left who are, like it is no longer the case that um, that what constitutes socialist politics in the U.S. is basically a bunch of nerds getting together every like year to replay like debates from the Second International, you know, in in like a truly kind of pathetic and mm-hmm. cosplay yeah. kind of way. And yeah. I say this as somebody who was involved in this, right? Like yeah. I was involved in 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 the labor movement and student activism and mm-hmm. and I was a, a a DSA member before the renaissance of yeah. DSA when we were yeah. when there was like it was like a thousand you were DSA before DSA well, was cool <laughs> well I was like it was like the a thousand college students and then like and then like a bunch of old Jews in New York you know what I mean like that was all that DSA was yeah. and I'm just saying that 
it's better now. And I think that our criticisms of the left sort of like self-satisfaction and comfort with being marginal and pathological kind of attachment to losing mm-hmm. and pathological suspicion of power is really no longer as animating of like the American yeah, left as I it agree. was um, even 10 years ago. Yeah. Well, maybe we can just say that, you know, as F. Scott Fitzgerald once noted, the, the mark of a first rate mind is the ability to hold two contradictory things in tension and still function. <laughs> Uh, so, listeners to Know Your Enemy, uh, what's up next? Uh, well, after this discussion of Albert O. Hirschman's The Rhetoric of Reaction, Sam and I, next episode, are going to talk about Sam Tannenhaus's The Death of Conservatism, which is a wonderful little book that, among other things, is a very tidy history of post-war American conservatism, and that will provide opportunities to talk about, among other things, whether conservatism is dead or not, conservatism in its classically configured way uh, that, that is as found in the page of National Review and perhaps as it how it yeah. relates to Trumpism. So patience, dear listeners, uh, if this was a little abstract, uh, analyzing different modes of argument and rhetoric, we'll get to some nitty gritty next episode. Yeah. And uh, so tune in next time as we talk about Sam Tannenhouse and the death of conservatism. You might say what is living and what is dead in American conservatism. The rebirth. Over the undead. <laughs> Winter Thanks is coming. Winter is coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. The dead are here. <laughs> Open up the doors of heaven and let me. I think I'm finally tired of living and let me in. I'm gonna walk in the glory till everyone miles Open up the doors of heaven and let me. I try to live my life in a righteous way I try to do my best from day to day But no matter how hard I try It seems all I can do is cry So if I know